We continue through our series of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, beginning last week with sola scriptura, which is by scripture alone. That is our full authority. Our authority is not the church. Our authority is the word of God. What God has decreed, what he has declared, that is to which we uh, have adhered ourselves. That is what we obey. That is our guidance in every faith and practice. When it comes to understanding who God is and what he has said, that's in the Bible. When it comes to knowing about heaven, we don't hear fanciful allusions from little four-year-old boys who claim that they took a trip to heaven and came back to tell the tale and are now writing a best-selling book about it. That is not our guide according to what eternity looks like. It is according to what the Bible has said. When it comes to our hope, our deliverance, our redemption, it is according to what is said in the Word of God. When it comes to how we should live and walk in faith and in practice, as Julie said with the, the boys and girls this morning, knowing the promises of God, what he has said, that he will deliver us from every trial, that this world is not our final resting place, that he is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that promise we find in the Bible. And there is no other assurance than the word of God. So we began last week with sola scriptura, and this week we come to sola gratia, by grace alone. Next week, we'll be looking at sola fide, which is by faith alone. These two are really pretty interchangeable because it is by faith that we enter into grace, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5. It is by grace that we even have this faith, as we'll read here in Ephesians chapter 2. So either way we go at this, we can come to either faith first or grace first, but both are gifts from God. In honor of the word of the king, would you please stand? We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we consider the authority of your word, what it has declared from your mouth, God breathed into your prophets and apostles. I pray this morning that we come to understand grace. That there is a realization within every human heart in this room that we have sinned. And when we read in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is not just a verse that we learned in Sunday school, but we understand that falling short of the glory of God means that what we deserve is wrath. We deserve death. We deserve judgment and eternal separation from God because we sinned against you. We committed treason against the high throne of the King of Heaven. We deserve to be excluded from your kingdom, cast into hell and destroyed for all eternity. Every single one of us here in this room deserves that. But it is by your grace that you not only did not destroy us, but showed us favor and kindness in Christ Jesus our Lord sending your own Son from heaven to die on the cross for our sins so that all who believe in him will have eternal life and become fellow heirs of your kingdom. We went from being treasonous to fellow heirs. By grace we are saved through faith, and this is not our doing. It is by nothing that we have done, but by the finished work of of Christ on the cross. Praise you for your great name. In the name of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Grace is perhaps, as far as, far as doctrine is concerned, as far as the teaching of the word of God goes, there is perhaps not a more important doctrine than grace. Grace is the Christian faith. Without the grace of God, Christianity is not any different than any other religion on earth. Because all religions are about pursuing how man can be good. Or if it is a religion that worships another god, they believe the gods are angry with me and I need to do something in order to gain favor with the gods. We talked about this a little bit, even in the context of Greek and Roman history, in which Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, when they had a different god for a different thing, and sometimes that god would even live in a different location. So you would have Poseidon, the god of the sea, and whenever there was a storm that came up on the sea, the sailors thought, we've made Poseidon angry, so we have to do something to gain Poseidon's favor with us again. But we cannot do anything to gain favor with God. Because when we understand that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, it is with dead, dirty hands that we're trying to do dead, dirty deeds in order to gain favor from a holy, living God. And we can't do it. Because all we have to offer up 
are dead, dirty offerings. You cannot gain favor with God. In fact, what you deserve from God is destruction. You deserve judgment. You deserve to be removed from his presence forever. That's what you deserve. Why is it that that's not what we have received? Grace. By grace, we are saved. What does grace mean? This this is very simply the two-word definition of grace. It is unmerited favor. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but God showed you favor. You can't do anything to earn it, but God has showed you favor. Unmerited favor, that is our definition of grace. So what is the definition of grace and mercy? Because we actually have both words used here in this passage. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is compassion towards someone when it is in their power to rightly punish or harm them for the wrong that they have done. So in other words, if you were to have pointed the finger at God and said, I hate you, which we all have done. Maybe those words have not actually come out of your mouth, but all of us in rebellion against God have hated God in our hearts. So you pointed the finger at God and you said, I hate you. And God said, I won't destroy you. That's mercy. When you have pointed the finger at God and you have said, I hate you, and his response has been, I love you, that's grace. There's the difference between grace and mercy. God is not merely neutral in the sense that he just didn't destroy us when that's what it is that we've deserved. He has actively poured out his love to us by sending his son Jesus to die in our place. Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. And whenever whenever we look at the ministry of Christ and we see the loving, wonderful deeds that he did, the things that he taught, he was not merely our example. Now, and you've heard me preach that before. Christ is our ultimate example of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Christ is our ultimate example. That is true, but he's not merely our ultimate example. Christ is also our substitute. When we could not do anything to gain favor with God, Jesus did everything perfectly and sinlessly when we were unable. We could not live that perfect life. So so Jesus was our substitute, not only in his death, but also in his life. And then when he died, because he lived a perfect life, he was that pure, spotless lamb, that pure sacrifice. In order for sins to be atoned for, blood has to be shed. And so Christ shed his blood for us. And more than just dying on a cross, he took the wrath of God on himself. Why was Jesus so distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested 
and put on trial and put to death. It wasn't just because he knew he was going to be executed by capital punishment. It's because while he hung there on the cross for three hours, he was going to be taking the wrath of God, his father, on himself so that we would never have to experience that. All who are in Christ Jesus, who believe on his name, who follow his calling, never have to experience the wrath of God. When you die, that's the worst thing that will ever happen to you. And then from then on, you are with the Lord forever in glory. For the one who is a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you are in Christ, that is the grace of God. Christ, our substitute in life. Christ, our substitute in his death. Christ being resurrected from the grave so that all who believe in him will receive his resurrection. This is the grace and the gift of God. Grace is the most important concept in the Bible. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to this ultimate act of grace with God sending his son to die for our sin so that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Without grace, there's no Christianity. Without the grace of God, the gospel, which means good news, would not be the gospel. Because you would still be working to try to earn the favor of a holy God, which you can never attain, and that's not good news. But the gospel is that by the grace of God, Jesus died for our sin so that all who believe in him might have eternal life. Now, as, as we are considering these things in light of this being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Ref Reformation, what was it that the Catholic Church taught? Well, the Catholic Church taught that if you want to be saved, you have to do good works. In fact, there were even priests that were selling indulgences, meaning that you had to buy penance. You had to buy grace. You had to buy forgiveness from the church. What a horrible burden. And those who were rich could buy more grace than the people who were poor. Not good news at all. And it was this very act that Luther stood in defiance against and nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church. It was, it was his protest, his opposition to uh, this, this practice that was going on, this perversion of the grace of God that was being exercised by the Catholic Church. Now, at what point the Catholic Church strayed away from uh, a sound doctrine and sound teaching differs according to which historian that you listen to. There are different histori historians who will teach different things. Some will say that it's toward the end of the 4th century or 5th century, somewhere in there. Some will even say it was at the point that they partnered with Rome. That was the immediate corruption of the church. But however uh, that trailed along in this, this gradual dismissal of right teaching and sound doctrine, eventually it came to the point where we are at, in the mid-1500s, where the church was just totally uh, far from any sound teaching at all. In fact, as Luther concluded, the Catholic Church is not preaching the gospel. They have no gospel. There is no good news in the Catholic Church by which a person can be saved. And by the way, the doctrine of the Catholic Church hasn't changed. So lest you think in 500 years now, well, maybe they've softened themselves on some things. No. They're still teaching heresy. 
They're still placing a burden on people that they cannot work to attain. They cannot overcome. I mean, just consider, I I just uh, copied off two points of the Catholic Catechism this morning. Uh, Catholic Catechism number 846. How are we to understand this affirmation related to salvation? Often repeated by the church fathers. Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. Do you get that? So if you want to be saved, you have to go to the Catholic church. That's what they're saying. If you don't go to the Catholic church, you're not saved. That is not the way that we are saved. Just consider the way that they have reworded scripture. All salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body. What did we just read here? By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So last week we looked at sola scriptura, that the Bible is our ultimate authority. What does the Catholic Church teach? Uh, A doctrine called sola ecclesia, which means that the church is the ultimate authority. No, the church is submissive to the word of God. Folks, I am not your authority. I can't declare you saved. I cannot declare you forgiven. It is only the word of God that does that. What is my responsibility as a pastor? Merely to stand up here and tell you what the word of God says. That's it. I've got no authority. I can't declare you saved. I can't even tell you to go mow my lawn. By the way, if somebody wants to do that, I'd be all right with that. <laughs> but, but the Catholic Church claims they have all the authority. They're the ones that declare you saved. They're the ones that administer baptism and the sacraments. And, and oh, by the way, you also have to do those things in order to be saved. Catholic Catechism 1257. The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. There you go. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have the possibility of asking for this sacrament. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into this beatitude. It's the Catholic Church saying, you have to be saved by the Catholic Church and you have to be baptized into the Catholic Church. It is the only way to salvation and the church knows no other way by which you can be saved. I know another way. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Scripture alone. Grace is unmerited favor that we can do do no work to attain. Now, if you are in the grace of God, you will want to be baptized. You will want to attend church. You will want to show love and good works to one another, but those things don't save you. They are the evidence of your faith, not the cause of it. What else can we know about grace? 
The scriptures are covered with references to grace. We, we even read a psalm this morning, Psalm 86, where we read at least two references to grace in just the seven verses that we went through. Grace is the basis for our Christian identity. As Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's 1 Corinthians 1.10. We went through that when we started our series in, in Corinthians. Grace is the basis for our standing before God. Romans 5.2, this grace in which we stand before God. Grace is the basis for our behavior. 2 Corinthians 2.12, we behaved in the world by the grace of God. Grace is the basis for our way of life. Romans 5.17, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Grace is the basis for our way of speaking. The very words that come out of your mouth. Let your speech always be gracious. Colossians 4.6. Grace is the basis for our holiness. We have been called to a holy calling by his own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 2.9. Grace is the basis for our strength. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1. Grace is the basis for our sufficiency. As Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians 2.9. Grace is the basis for our restoration. The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, 1 Peter 1.10. Grace is the basis for our mission. The gospel of the grace of God is, is the way that the gospel is described by Paul in Acts 20, 24. Grace is the basis for our future. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 13. Grace is the basis for our hope. Grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5, 21. I've probably been reading more B.B. Warfield this year than, than any other uh, dead Christian writer. And he has said, grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. John Stott said, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges, grace is is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. And that's, that's who we read about at the start of this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. The first three verses, we read about who we were before Christ when we were still in rebellion against God. Look with me again, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. You were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I didn't, I didn't plan on talking about this, but let's talk about the difference between those two things very quickly. Trespasses and sins. What's the difference between trespasses and sins? Why did Paul think it necessary to have to say that you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked? Trespasses... Your trespasses is everything that you have done against the law of God. When you know that the law of God has said this and you did the opposite, you have trespassed against the law. The law says, do not covet, but you covet the things that you don't have, which Paul also describes in Colossians 3.5 as idolatry. So you've also been idolatrous when God says you will have no other gods before me, and yet you have worshipped the things that you want above God. 
So you're an idolater, you're a coveter. Just by coveting, you've also committed idolatry. So now you've trespassed. You've trespassed two things just with your coveting. If you lust after somebody that you're not married to, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, and of course we know in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. So there you've trespassed the law. You know the law says don't do that, but you do it anyway. You've trespassed. So that's trespasses. What are sins? Well, according to Romans 14, sin is anything that is not done in faith. So anything that you do that is not according to the faith that you have in Christ and his commandments in obedience to him, that's sin. Everything you do in rebellion against God, his perfection is holiness, that is not done in honor and in worship to the Lord, all of that is sin. So basically what Paul is making sure that he gets in here is the realization that no matter, no matter what, you've broken God's law. No matter who you are, whether you're a Jew who knew the law of God, you trespassed the law of God. Or you were a Gentile who did not know the law of God, you still sinned against God because you did not do what you did in faith. And so everyone, Jew and Gentile, those who were the the chosen race of God and those who were wandering dead in this world without the law, both were dead in their trespasses and sins in which in which you once walked. Before we came to Christ, we were all dead. How more specific does that metaphor need to be? You were dead. What can a dead person do? What can a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. They they can't even lie there. Because if you told a dead person, hey, lie there. Oh, see, he's obeying me. He he has no response to what you said whatsoever. Dead is dead. There's nothing there. They are empty. It's a body with no soul. So who we were before Christ, we were dead men walking. Dead men and women walking. The walking dead. The dawn of the dead. Whatever other zombie uh, uh, ties you want to make into that. We were dead. You were, you were a walking corpse with a dead soul. You were born physically alive, but you were spiritually dead. You had no soul that sought after the Lord. You were not even seeking for him. It says that in Romans 3.12. You could do nothing good. You could do nothing righteous. Now, maybe according to the world's standards, you were probably a nice guy. You were probably a good lady. Maybe the world would have looked at you and thought you were, you were a pleasant person. But all of that was self-righteousness because everything that you did was to your own glory and not to the glory of God. You were not trying to please God. You were not seeking after God and you could do nothing good before God. You were dead. This again is the, is the dead, dirty deeds we were trying to do to God and none of it is good enough. Filthy rags, as it is explained in Isaiah 64, 6. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you're not just passively dead. You were actively dead. You were pursuing death. You were living according to dead people. You walked in your sins. You followed somebody. 
You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Folks, there are only two religions in this world. There's the religion of God and there's the religion of Satan. You're either following God or you're following the devil. Those are your options. An atheist says, I don't follow anybody. Yeah, they do. They may not acknowledge it with their lips, but they're following Satan. All other religions in the world, apart from Christianity, again, is all about doing good works and trying to earn righteousness by your own, uh, by your own merit. That's even what the atheist does. He thinks he can be a good person by himself. No one is good. No one will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, well, look at all the good I did. Does any murderer stand in a court before a judge and say, hey, I know I murdered those kids, but look at all the other good that I do in the community. And the judge is going to go, oh, well, that, that cancels it out then. He would be a horrible judge if that was his verdict. But God, as a good, a good judge, will punish people for their sin. And that's, that's what we deserve. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, that description of Satan, too, is, as the prince of the power of the air, oh, boy, that is my favorite description in today's multimedia age. When you think of stuff that gets beamed into your television set or on your radio or into your phone or on your computer and all manner of things that either are attempting to pollute your mind, like actively pollute your, your brain and your heart with, with the filth that could be in front of you there on a screen. Or it could just merely be, I mean, you, you may not even watch anything that we would perceive as dirty, but... It's just the fact that it numbs your brain. It just distracts you from all the things that you know you should do, actively loving your family, reading the Word, spending time with God, those things you're not doing because you need to catch up on My Little Pony. You know, I don't, I don't know. What, that's what popped in my head because that's what my kids are watching all the time. I got three girls. Give me a break. Some days, Daddy just goes, guys, something else other than... Paw Patrol or My Little Pony, okay? Let's, let's pick something else today. Anyway, it, it's just all, all the stuff that's out there that attempts to numb our brains and distract us from the things that we should be doing. And it's not, it's not that the world has gotten worse with technology. I just think it exposes the sin that was already present in our hearts. Perhaps you've seen some of those pictures from like the 1930s and 40s where it showed just a row of men along the sidewalk with newspapers in front of them. Like they were all staring at newspapers just like we stare at our cell phones now. It's really no different. It's the same. Nobody's interacting with anyone. I'm in my own world reading my newspaper. I saw another one that showed every single person on a trolley was reading a newspaper. They're all sitting there with newspapers up in front of them and nobody talking to one another. So it's not that the, the technology has made our uh, interaction with one another worse. Uh, it's, just, it's just exposed the the corruption that was already there in our hearts, to not love one another, to not show kindness to each other. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We, we listen to the philosophy of this world. We listen to the news. Tell us what it is that we should think about things. By the way, whenever some crazy disaster happens in uh, the United States, whether it's a hurricane or a mass murderer, don't listen to Infowars. It's amazing to me the number of news sites that I would bring up this week that would actually cite Infowars as 
a credible source. No, they are, they're conspiracy theorists. And, that, and that's, that's like the way that we have to filter our news today. What's true and what's somebody coming up with just to get us all hyped up so we watch the 24-hour news cycle and, and feel like I, I can't turn away from this for a minute because something might happen. Oh, me, oh, my. This, it, the, the news cycle just keeps us in this constant state of worry and fear and anxiety. Even that is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, so you are not just passively dead, you're actively dead. A spirit that is work, a dead spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, you have no place to be able to say, well, boy, look at how bad all those people were, and I'm not like them. No, you were just like them. If you're in Christ now, you were just like them. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still among the sons of disobedience. We are either sons of God or we're sons of Satan. You were not born a son of God. That is one of the, one of the number one uh, uh, arguments that I receive whenever I do evangelism here in Junction City. Like when I go out and I'm just sharing the gospel with somebody on the sidewalk, one of the number one responses I get is somebody will say, well, I am, I'm already a child of God. I was made in his image, right? He loves me. I was made in his image. So I am a child of God. No, actually, the fact that you were made in his image and then sinned is exactly why you're not a child of God. Because you took that which God gave to you, again, and Paul says here, the desire, you, you carried out the desires of the body and the mind. So God gave you your body, he gave you your mind, he gave you the very next breath that you breathe. And you took the things that God gave you and you blasphemed him with it and glorified yourself and entertained the things that you thought you needed to be satisfied, saying to God, I know better than you what I need to be happy. And that is why you are worthy of wrath. Because you were made in God's image and you desecrated that image with your sin. You are not born a child of God. You are born again a child of God. But when you were born, you were not a child of God. Jesus said it to the Jews in John 8. You are of your father, the devil. And your desire is to do your father's desires. If you are born again in Christ... Your desire is still to do your father's desires, but your father is God, into whose family you have been adopted by the blood of Christ. You following me? So we were born sons of Satan. And, and this was, you know, last year when we were going through uh, the whole doctrine of original sin, we are descendant from Adam. We have all inherited his sin nature. And as he was fallen from God by his sin in the garden, so we also are all fallen from God. We do the same things that Adam did. What we deserve for this is to be destroyed, as we read about in the book of Revelation. All those who receive judgment at the final judgment will be cast into the lake of fire. That was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so if you're still following the devil, by the time you get to that final judgment, by the time you die... 
If you are following the devil to the point of your death, then at that final judgment, God will throw you in the same place that he will put the devil and his angels, the lake of fire and sulfur that burns forever. That is, that's what we deserve for our sin. And it is necessary for me to tell you that, though if you've sat under my teaching for any period of time, you have heard me say that before. But see, I understand that as a preacher, I stand up here and most Sundays I'm preaching through a fog. And that fog could be any number of things. That fog could be all the stuff that happened to you this week that is just clouding your mind and making it so difficult for you to sit and receive a word from the Lord. You're still thinking about all the stuff that happened to you during the week, and you're thinking about all the stuff that you've got coming up this week. Or perhaps that fog is that you've grown up in church for 20, 30, 40 years. You've heard all this stuff before. So when I use words like sin and righteousness and and trespasses and holiness and justification and sanctification, and you're going, yeah, sure, okay. These are the words that I expect to hear when I come into church. And so they just bounce around against your brain, but they never actually get into your heart. And so you hear it, but it doesn't penetrate. So I know that I'm kind of preaching into this fog, this cloudiness that is either uh, either trying to preach through events or I'm trying to preach through jadedness. But one way or the other, the message has difficulty in getting into your heart. And so it is necessary for me to repeat this over and over again, that you are dead in your sins and your trespasses in which you once walked. Because if you don't understand that, my brothers and sisters, if you don't know you've rebelled against God and what you deserve is hell, grace means nothing to you. You are not just automatically walking in the grace of God. Yes, there is a common grace, which Chris talked about today when he came up and prayed. (laughs) That common grace you can observe in the sense that everybody is still alive. Like you're walking around and you pass a guy on the sidewalk. That guy's alive because of the common grace of God. You don't even have to know whether he's saved or not. He is alive because God has not just obliterated mankind for their sin. That's common grace. That everyone can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond to it in repentance and faith. That is the common grace of God. But the grace that saves you, you do not automatically have. The grace that you know you need, you acquire how? Let's go on. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, again, though we deserved punishment, and he could have done us harm. Instead, he said, I'm not going to destroy you. That's the mercy of God. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. A great volume of love. We have that spoken about even in the famous passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That word so, a great volume of love. God so loved the world. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul said in Romans 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you had ever heard about the grace of God, the message of the gospel of Christ, when you were still walking as dead men in this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is at work, and the sons of disobedience, pursuing the desires of the body and the mind, even when you were in that state, Christ died for you. So that by his blood, you would be saved, forgiven your sins. God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now we have unity with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We're together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So now instead of getting destruction, what you have gotten is the kingdom. Instead of being destroyed as an enemy of the kingdom of God, he has made you a fellow heir through the sacrifice of Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, when you die and you go into the ground, your body goes into the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord, if you're a follower of Christ, if you believe that Jesus has saved you from your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he is interceding for you on your behalf, then when you die, your spirit will go to be with the Lord, your body will go in the ground. When your body goes in the ground, and you are no longer a living, active, breathing participant in this world, guess what? The grace that God showed you in your life continues to be proclaimed for his glory. So the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus would be proclaimed. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So again, the question that I asked before we jumped into verse 4, how do you get this grace? How do you know that you have eternal life instead of destruction, which is what you deserve? Because you, what, what Julie said with the kids this morning, you have faith. You believe. You believe in Christ. That is how you are saved. By baptism? No. By the sacraments of the church? No. Because the church told me I'm saved? No. Because you believed in Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And that's what we're talking about next week. We're going to talk about by faith alone. By grace alone, by faith alone. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I mentioned to you last week that, that the Protestant Reformation is not just something that happened 500 years ago in 1517, and then lasted for one or two generations or something like that. 
The Reformation is something that is still needed even today because there are ways in which we fall back into the same heresies that the Catholic Church was perpetrating and still perpetrating today. Let me give you an example of that. If you believe that you've been saved because you prayed a prayer, that's heresy. Because you believed it was by the work that you did that you got saved. And you might argue, well, Pastor Gay, what about Romans 10, 8, and 9, where it says that if you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. The context of that is Paul saying that if you're saved, you will continue to proclaim your love and your faith in Christ Jesus until your death. And it is by that proclamation that has been the evidence of the transformation that happened in your heart, you are saved. Not because you said the words. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ and no other way. The words were the evidence of your salvation. They were not the cause of your salvation. Now, you may have begun your walk of faith with a prayer, but the prayer didn't save you. The date that you wrote in the back of your Bible, the day that I prayed this prayer, that date doesn't save you. Christ saves you. By faith, you have been saved and received the grace of God. And so there are ways and there are times that we fall right back into those same false teaching, believing that we have to do something in order to earn this grace. You do nothing. It is not your own doing. And understand that there in verse 8. See that. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Grace, salvation, and faith have all been articulated there in verse 8, and it says this is not your own doing. Which one? Grace, salvation, or faith? All of the above. D, all of the above. You had nothing to do with your salvation. You have nothing to do with the grace that you have received. You have nothing to do with the faith that you have. All of these things were given to you by God. How is it that God gives us faith and we don't do something to have that faith? That's what we'll talk about next week because I'm already hitting noon here, so I can't go into all of that. Since faith is the subject of the message last or next week, we'll save that until next week. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works. No one can boast. No one can stand before God and said, I paid more money for my forgiveness than the other guy did. And so here I am. I did more great deeds than that guy did. Give me my reward. Romans 11, who has given a gift to him that we might be repaid? You can't give anything to God and expect to earn anything from that. No one has done anything to earn their salvation. No one can boast before God. It is to him belongs all the glory. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are works you're supposed to do. But your works don't save you. The good works that you do are the evidence of the faith that you have received in Christ. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in his righteousness? Are you grateful that he has clothed you in his righteousness instead of left you as children of wrath? Then show that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ by living righteously as Jesus did. This is the evidence of the salvation that you have received by grace through faith. I'm going to conclude here reading to you what Luther says about faith. And then I want to, I want to share with you a story here, something 
uh, from my, my travels earlier this week. Here's what Luther said about grace. As he was exploring these things and realizing the falseness of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, here is what Luther wrote about grace. Grace signifies that favor with which God receives us, forgiving our sins and justifying us freely through Christ. The best and infallible preparation for grace is the eternal election and predestination of God. As far as our own abilities are concerned, there is no difference whatever between us. But the grace of Christ alone causes us to differ. On man's part, nothing precedes grace but rebellion against grace. No one can be good and do good unless God's grace first makes him good. Grace is freely given to the most undeserving and unworthy and is not obtained by any strenuous efforts, endeavors, or works. To want to merit grace by works that precede faith is to want to appease God by sins. Since we are one mass of perdition, no one is justified except through the grace of Christ without merits. Either sin is lying on your shoulders or on Christ, the Lamb of God. According to law and justice, your sins should no doubt remain on you. But grace has cast them upon Christ, the Lamb. Grace and life were given you believers, but it meant bitter work for him, for Christ. The word, I say, and the word alone is the conveyor of the grace of God. No matter what things appear to be like, grace clings to the word. No nobler preaching exists than that of grace. Grace freely grants us the faith that alone justifies us. Conscience cannot be brought to rest and joy unless it has peace through this grace, the forgiveness of sins promised in Christ Jesus. Man must completely despair of himself in order to become fit for the grace of Christ. The proper preparation for the grace and goodness of Christ is awareness that I need them. The devil is forever attracting people to good works to make sure that they do not reach the point of thinking that they need grace and the mercy of God. The law is not to be discarded because of the promise of great of grace. Rather, it is to be taught. In giving us gifts, God gives only what is his. But in his grace, he gives his very self to us. Grace is not divisible, nor is it given piecemeal as our gifts, but it takes us entirely into God's favor for the sake of Christ, our advocate and mediator. This grace of God is a very great, strong, and mighty, active thing. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, it leads, it drives, it draws, it changes. It works all in man and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an exhaustible well of all grace. 
Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would not lose as much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer, sheer, unimaginable grace. Whoever wishes to enjoy Christ's grace and no one is excluded, let him come and receive it from him. I am seeking and I am thirsting for nothing else than a gracious God. Is that you? Can you say this morning that you, are, you want nothing more than the satisfaction of Christ? Nothing else in this world can satisfy, give me peace. Nothing can surely give me right standing with God. Nothing can give me comfort. The next movie I watch on Netflix is not going to satisfy my itch for something more meaningful. I want God. I want the grace of God. Give me Jesus. This past week, as many of you know, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, and was the MC for a a, a benefit banquet for the pregnancy care center there in Jonesboro, Georgia. This is my second year to MC that event. The keynote speaker this year, Dr. Robinson, I, I forget his first name now, but he was an abortion doctor. His wife taught him how to do abortions. That's how they met. And they had this practice together in which they killed babies. And they made a lot of money doing it. And it was by a transformation of the Holy Spirit that one day he looked at an image of an aborted child and he realized what it was that he had done. He had just killed a baby. And he felt the life drain out of him. And by the grace of God, he repented of his sin and worshiped Christ, and he knew by the promises that were given to him in the, in the word of God, the Bible, by worshiping Christ and seeking him alone, apologizing to him for the rebellion that he had committed against God, that he received the grace of Christ and was forgiven his sins. And he could say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, in this grace now I stand. His story doesn't end there. He opened up a private family practice in College Station, Texas. And there in College Station, Planned Parenthood opened up a clinic. There's a very famous story related to that Planned Parenthood. There was a woman that oversaw their operation. Her name was Abby Johnson. There was a crisis pregnancy center next door to Planned Parenthood. And one morning, Abby Johnson came walking through that door. The people who worked there at the Crisis Pregnancy Center said, um, Abby Johnson just walked in here. And she came in and said that I realize what it is that I have been doing. I have been killing children, and I need to repent. 
Planned Parenthood assembled their team of lawyers to attack Abby Johnson and claim that she was speaking of things that were going on at the clinic that were meant to be kept secret, and she had violated some sort of agreement with Planned Parenthood not to expose the works and practices that they did. Exactly what was Planned Parenthood doing that was so bad that couldn't be talked about? But the lawyers could not develop a case, and the judge threw it out. He said, you have no charge against this woman. Planned Parenthood there in College Station, Texas, fell apart. I think it was around 2013, the clinic closed down. They could not meet their quota for the number of abortions that they had to commit in a given year. I mean, that's horrible to think about, but praise God that they couldn't meet their quota. What happened to the building after that? It got bought by the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Dr. Johnson said to his wife, why don't we buy the clinic? And they bought it and opened up their family practice there. And he stood before the banquet telling this story on Thursday night, and he said, can you imagine a man who made his living and made a fortune killing children bought a closed-down abortion clinic and opened a family practice where instead of killing babies, he's now saving babies' lives. He said, you could not write that, and it would be believable. If you wrote that into a script of a movie, everybody would go, no. <laughs> Who would believe a story like that? This is the grace of Christ. That takes what is dead and dying and disgusting and disturbing and turns it into life and love and peace and forgiveness.